Okay, so, and this new series that I'm thinking of recording, I'll focus on where my love for research came in and then do a, an episode on specific research tools. I know I've covered some of the, of these in uh, the UX series, focusing more explicitly on user experience, but I think I don't want to go deeper into methodology and research design and why these can solve so much of the problems that are faced downstream in the day-to-day -day job of doing research where you're just asked to, <laughs> to have some findings. But, you know, I hope that my love for research can be infectious enough to show that these are important questions. But how did I fall in love with research? Um, obviously I'm not going to talk too much about my academic background, but it started with uh, not your traditional business degree, but I focused a lot on international relations, which had a heavy you know, uh, desk-based research focus and I had to write a thesis which <laughs> at the time I thought very well managed to propose a solution to the improvement of the relationship between the US, Europe, the European Union and China uh, and centering on the issue of Taiwan and that was uh, I believe not seen by anybody that was actually going to implement it. So uh, early on, I, you, you might argue, I'd noticed that doing research without impact is not necessarily a desirable thing. No matter how much I love methods, I just always get drawn to what would be the outcome of my research. Uh, and in some sense, have a leaning towards action research, it seems. I found that very late as a name tag for it, but I guess that can be explained by the, the more practical work that I did uh, straight out of my uh, master's degree, which followed the, the, the bachelor's. So I did marketing and strategy at work, which had a very strong focus on your uh, strategic type of typical almost MBA style training in case studies so you get examples of things so things get summarized in practical examples you study how somebody did it really well you know company Y did something X and then the outcome was Z so this kind of uh, Harvard style teaching I guess affected me and also not being allergic to case study research as well, not just case study based teaching where, you know, these examples tend to get pulled uh, as representative of a, of a wider theme in the teaching, right? But, but also I think even at the time I was realizing there's got to be some merit to detailed case study research. 
which oftentimes may be considered uh, unfairly as um, not as uh, generalizable as people would say compared to quantitative big scale, you know. Uh, studies which, even though they cover breadth of, of, of cases, actually don't go into the, into the depth, right? So, I mean, I, I'm saying this now, I'm sure that at the time I didn't have that grasp, but it's really interesting to look back at some of the seeds. And then I definitely didn't get a research job coming out of university. It was a very much, very much a practical brand management role um, and marketing, but then I did lean heavily into my uh, consumer centricity because I did get uh, incentivized. I was in, a, in an organization where they encouraged us to spend two days a month uh, in deep hanging out with our consumers. So we'd identify people that would fit uh, the personas that we had uh, deduced from a combination of analytics from you know, watching. Uh, you know, at the time, it was mainly Nielsen data from for traditional media, because you know, social media was becoming a thing. But I guess they were a bit more traditional. So, then that kind of data mixed with uh, some of our own research, and you know, we'd identify the people and then spend the time with them and. I just noticed the disproportionately big effect that had on how easy it was for me to argue from experience almost, you know, from experience research. So I spend the time with these people uh, against senior people. Uh, the CEO used to always bring up what his kid would like and not like. And that used to annoy me because it was a technique of, you know, arguing he's got user experience on the other side but you know uh, you you learn that even though you've got the, the research done people can still always throw it under the bus by just having uh their views and and a lot of times they actually come from a, a place not because they want to argue but we just have a culture of binary argumentation where they're probably considering other aspects you know Really, a lot of times the CEO would have been thinking about saying no to initiatives because it costs money, right? And so that makes sense. And I find myself in the day job as a researcher, you know, today. That's the case very often if you really dig deep. And I guess what I notice as the main thing that the drew me as part of the brand management job was that we had these monthly kind of deep you know sessions with our director that would we'll present plans and the research you know why are we doing certain things but i noticed very early on that a lot of the times these used to be treated by others as uh, static reviews rather than a process and then shifting to a process orientation literally solved a lot of the problems because we were starting to piece things together. We were always in the move and you have a process um, whereas the static view puts you on edge. It's never enough. You never have enough research and 
in a commercial setting. If you wanted to have enough research, you know, you'd commission something academic and it would take you five years. And then you'd know with more certainty, you know, but uh, would you ever act on it? So I guess then I ended up in a, in a side, side quest because of my passion that I had on the side when I was doing uh, my masters, I thought, you know, branding and nations were starting to be put together. People were starting to think about uh, such a thing. Obviously, there's a long history of selling places uh, that people that are not that deep into that field might not think about, but, you know, the idea of going to the American frontier, you know, to dig gold, that was always kind of promoted by somebody that wanted to sometimes get you on a train and sell you a train ticket. Right, this is just an example. But at the time, I applied for a few PhD opportunities, but didn't get funding uh, around that area. And then starting a, a job in that area, you know, kind of promoting a local place. And Shrewsbury Infrastructure in the UK helped me get some experience into well, what the thing is really that was being discussed in the books. Uh, obviously on a small scale, but I, I had fallen in love with living in that place anyway. Um, just happened to live nearby and took a big pay cut and just got the job. But I was allowed a lot of freedom to explore and do a lot of things and introduce. Uh, the same kind of process orientation towards initiatives and research and start writing and contributing to a few kind of uh, places on, on this topic, went to a few conferences and then I managed to get a PhD in this area. Now, I didn't think at the time, I guess, that I would fall in love with research methods as much or the research aspect I kind of always wanted to aim towards academia That's subconsciously probably because it's a well it's always presented as a as a heroic place where you can create new knowledge but I've I've realized you know the stuff that you learn in research very good but I had some experience lecturing which was very rewarding but also so time-consuming the people that do that like well played the, and it's not just the lecturing but the marking and the giving of feedback that's a, it's a very rewarding thing to do but to do it at the scale of what I was doing was too much for me and that was like almost at an entry-level lecturing the people that do that at a higher level I don't think probably get enough of a recognition but obviously I'm now four well there's a fifth year into a six year part-time PhD which has been mind hardening but also very good in training in practical and more academic methods I don't know why that's a distinction but you know uh, it kind of is you know the outcomes that you look for are different and I very much see practical researchers that are frustrated and trying to do academic research in a practical setting and then the reverse academics that want to contribute to practice and have an impact so 
maybe it's an unfair distinction, but I think of them there is that way that not many people think about. You know, it tends to be a usual split between qualitative, quantitative data, but to me, all is data, and you gotta have the right tool for the right question, uh, which I know is probably actually more of a practical uh, perspective on research, because I know it seems to be that in more academic research, this is seen as too pragmatic. Uh, so, and I'm not saying not doing rigorous and, and in-depth research, I just mean given the money and the time you've been given, a lot of times you have to think twice before committing to the more detailed, the most detailed and rigorous study you can ever do, you know, uh, kind of the idea of what's good enough research to make a decision. So, and this perspective has really been, you know, brought into my head through the topic of the research that I've got for my PhD, which is around decision-making under uncertainty. The specific case is, and I'm interested in how people choose where to live, because oftentimes they don't, uh, probably are not aware of it, but in such a decision, it's very difficult to have a calculated approach. There's a lot of things out of your control and you can't know how they sometimes the, the outcome, the full outcome, because, you know, there are factors that play a role in that, but I've got other episodes on this that, where I talk a lot about the, the progress of the PhD, but I think I want to almost like drag out some of the, the methodological stuff that I've learned in this few episodes. Uh, it's been great to receive the the training that goes with the, with the PhD and the support of you know having monthly reviews with two professors that always support but uh, never let you do a, a bad job at, at research so that's definitely been helpful uh, because I then switched into a into a research role user experience research and focusing on the uh, the government uh, digital service kind of basically watching people use websites I keep saying uh, to people but uh, taking that facetious way of putting it to the side it's, uh, it's a job that requires some detailed skills in the in the profession but also some t-shaped know orthogonal skills that you gotta have I mean knowing some of the domain so I've you know had to do additional courses in user experience design and also the broader human-centered design uh, and the pandemic ultimately lately gave so much time for additional development that I was able to get a few certifications uh, to help me really put a few badges towards the skill that I have been developing over the last few years and I think that what I bring to the table compared to other researchers that might be working in the ecosystem of the between government and private sector user experience is my deep love for uh, research into topics like 
the one related to place, you know, and geography, um, which makes things very much more realistic and a bit more mundane, but um, I find a lot of times user experience gets considered as something totally new and unique, UX, actually when you look at phenomenological research in multiple disciplines, but the one I'm familiar with in geography, they've got a long history and they've got a long history of people philosophizing in this way, so having this deep-rooted uh, understanding of, of this, this part makes me feel at ease when people try to throw uh, experience research under the bus because it does work in a different way compared to uh, other things and lately I've been really drilling down as to why I think that is and from my perspective up until now obviously with this kind of claims I have to really hedge because it is based on my experience but you know experience is worth for something if we have to make these arguments uh, that why should be we be researching experience then um, if we don't trust our own experience is what I mean <laughs> uh, and I think that experience is more generalizable than identity I think a lot of people think of selves and people but experience is a bit different. Experience is a mixture of body, mind and environment. And a lot of times what we're researching in the more you know, uh, pragmatic aspects of user experience when we're not drilling deep into experiences and trying to discover needs. A lot of times we're just researching what I'd call the environment. You know, we're actually testing prototypes that people react to it's really interesting how they interact with that so it's in the interaction that we're interested in a lot of the times and then comprehension of it and then how it makes people feel so the thinking feeling and doing aspects all kind of intertwined but then at the same time we make a bit of a leap of faith and we split them out and present them to people to make decisions so it's, it's quite an enjoyable way of you know trying to stay deep in the understanding of research methods but actually almost allowing myself to intuitively forget about that when we're having to make a bit bolder claims not that we exaggerate our research but if you just try to communicate uh, academically about what the findings are it just doesn't seem to land and educating people into how they should be treating different types of evidence takes time so it takes patience which i often have you know might not have you know sometimes you have to stand your ground and and just explain to people that you know they're trying to knock uh, i mean the personal gripe i have is when people try to knock something that is a you know some user has a unique way that they mess up a, a, de a design and they don't mess it up because they've done something wrong but they discover uh, something that we haven't thought until now because our knowledge is limited and they show us something entirely new well then in how a lot of people's traditional mindset of this kind of finding react is well that's just one research and this is a well-known problem in case study research where uh, Sigelkov in 2007 talks about you know kind of persuading with case studies and uses the example of a talking pig 
which um, I keep using with the teams that I work with, where uh, Fiekov says, imagine that you find one talking pig. Well, that's good enough evidence that there is such a thing as a talking pig. And up until now, we didn't think that they existed. We're just bringing that pig along and showing in detail how it talks, why it talks is good enough evidence. But then again, a lot of times uh, trying to communicate that, that you're not just having an anecdote, but it could be, you know, later down the line, you find it might not generalize, but still at that moment in time, it expands your knowledge and expanding your knowledge when you're trying to figure out a new design is kind of all that matters at that point in time. So um, it, we don't worry about being totally right because we're building iteratively but it's important to look at it both ways and i guess what's uh, i guess i haven't haven't covered enough on the quantitative side just because i kind of came initially from that aspect uh, my master's thesis was actually a quantitative study i mentioned the bachelor's one being a desk-based one but I actually did do a probably one of the last mail-out surveys because it was for a quite a traditional uh, school had diff two different schools and they wanted to figure out the parents of the two schools um, could you actually segment them on based on uh, preferences uh, so that they can figure out how to best position the two compared to each other because they were basically running the same the same thing so why would you send your kid to one school and why to the other and i actually got a very high response rate for that which was you know surprising in survey research generally but not in that case because the i mean the it was i had the, the contacts of people that were sending their kids to these schools and it, it came from the school so people responded um so i've been quite blessed in the kind of surveys that i've uh, been doing that a lot of times doing it for government or kind of having an insider send them out it does help uh, and also I've had some experience using optimizing on a B kind of uh, well the digital version of a randomized control trial uh, in a, on a service uh, preparing for going into live uh, just to see if certain small bits that you're very certain because of your you know two years worth of evidence that you know you have a very strong hypothesis they could be done another way so i've done that as well so i guess i'm talking broadly about techniques here rather than just uh, methods and approaches and i'm probably intertwining all of them so in later episodes it's probably gonna be good to, to distinguish between these because i i do like to write research plans now for the teams i've got where i force myself to think about the research context the research objectives obviously and then the the approach whether it's going to be qualitative or quantitative but then also about the the method method which could be you know all of our usual suspected in the more creative research and UX space, you know, yeah. tree tests, usabilities, uh, interviews, analytics, whatever we call them, uh, 
and then actually going into the details. Okay, when you want to do this, specify the technique. So for example, the most recent round that I've been doing, uh, we're doing in-depth interviews, which is standard, but they're semi-structured around a, a critical case, which is a, which is a technique from a guy called Gary Klein that researches naturalistic decision-making and he developed that work and I think with firefighters where you have this case and because it's so blurry into the memory of of the participants you have to keep going back to it and back to it after you know they elaborate but to them they haven't dug that this deep themselves because I was trying to do this because we're trying to find uh, what best practice looks like but then step by step you know tell us if someone else was going to implement what you did how should we boost their knowledge which is kind of a, a behavioral science approach that i've been obviously uh, researching for my phd but it's been helpful in a lot of the work where i've been researching nudges and boosts which are not your traditional user experience research tools but they, they often find themselves into into the policy parts of government and you know i see both sides of them being kind of paternalistic but then at the same time the only one that probably has some legitimacy in being paternalistic you'd expect is your government because in some ways it is elected and it's a rabbit hole of justifying it but you know has to be done that justification and i've i've done a got a certification in behavioral science ethics which i think now is becoming even more and more of an issue as technology progresses you know what kind of a research even is okay to begin with and i've communicated with the behavior insights team of that's uh working adjacent to us to my team at the moment where i'm contracted in to almost uh peer review some of the things so that you know there's no danger that we go evil even though we're not even researching nudges as such they're more the boost type where boosts tend to be you know uh explicit uh, what some people call system two you know to talking to our reflective selves and trying to get people to understand what's really being asked of them rather than only but purely extremely paternalistically nudging them without their awareness into more uh, intuitive and less friction they less friction well more frictionless more flick frictionless uh, pathways but we we know where these have have gone and where they're gonna go in the future with the way that they're used in some commercial settings i mean dark patterns in user experience are a thing uh, i personally don't think they should be a thing but you know they are and it's it's one of those things where people are waking up to it and it might get regulated but i don't think people understand how influential the environment can be on on us and in the cases where we're in an online environment that environment has only certain affordances you can only go certain ways and then as much as you have an illusion of free choice you're actually more likely to go one way or the other 
So, uh, as usual, I do these kind of walk and talk podcasts. Not very much scripted. Uh, so if I've repeated anything from before or don't follow up on what I said, I don't have the time to be double checking this because at the end of the day, I do it for fun and self-reflection and hopefully to inspire others. So, yeah, I hope this time on my walk the microphone didn't have that much feedback, but I'm so glad I figured out this way of recording through Anchor Spotify's platform where I don't even need to sit down anymore to record this and publish it. I'm on my phone, record it, put it out, um, edit, add some funky intro tunes, and then it's gone. So, as usual, don't hold me to any of the usual fact checks. I don't think I've tried, I tried to be controversial in what I say, but maybe I've said something that might be seen as controversial. Uh, and, and if it is, actually there is a, an option where you can actually record the response to this, which is interesting, you know, if you're one of the 20 <laughs> listeners to this and want to reply, feel free. 